Section seven of Chimes from a Jester's Bells by Robert J. Burdett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Deborah Lynn. Chimes from a Jester's Bells by Robert J. Burdett. Section seven. The story of Rollo. Six. Learning to travel. Rollo had never been very far away from home. So one morning, when Mr. Holliday had business in town, he said to Rollo, "'Rollo, there is nothing which rounds out one's education so gracefully, which so symmetrically broadens one's ideas, gives such catholicity to the mind, so completely eradicates petty conceit and narrow egotism as travel. Providing always that the man has some sense, not much, but just a little bit, before he sets out on his travels.' If he be a fool, however, travelling only aggravates his complaint. A wise man, who had a great deal to do with fools, once wrote, Though thou shouldst bray a fool in a mortar among wheat with a pestle, yet will not his foolishness depart from him. And this is true. He would still be a fool, pulverized indeed, but all there, just as much fool as ever. Worse, indeed, he would be a pestilent fool. And Mr. Holliday smiled grimly, but not unkindly, at his little joke. Then he continued, "'Now, my son, if you will be a good boy this morning, and saw up a lot of nice green limb-wood for your mother, for this is baking day, and clean up the back yard, and cut the grass on the lawn, and lead the horse over to the blacksmith's shop, and tell Mr. Slaketroff that he has put the hind shoes on the four feet, and I want them changed, and then hurry back and whitewash the hen-house, and get yourself nicely washed and dressed by noon, you may go to the village with me.' Rollo clapped his hands with delight, and said he would be ready to go by eleven o'clock. Rollo then proceeded to bribe Thanny, principally with promises, to assist him with his morning's chores. Thanny, who had quite a commercial mind, accepted these promissory notes at large discount, having learned that business men were in the habit of exaggerating the discount in proportion to the promiser's necessities. Rollo explained to Thanny that by cutting the limb-wood an inch too long for the stove, it would last longer. But Thanny, whose shoulders were really quite sore, and whose back gave him considerable pain, said that he had reformed and was not going to play hooky nor cheat about anything any more. Rollo said that was right. He said he sometimes thought it was a pity that the pain from a licking did not last longer. He said that everybody in the world would probably join the church and be good if they didn't get over headaches and backaches so soon. If some man would invent a gad with which you could hit a boy a lick on the first of January that would smart until the end of December, everybody in the world would be as orderly and well-behaved and regular in their hours and meals, and as steady at their work as the convicts in a well-conducted penitentiary. This was quite large talk from Rollo, but it was the result of constant association with his father. Thanny's teacher had had a long talk with him on the previous evening upon the subject of truancy. She was a very winsome woman, bright and sparkling, and when Thanny gave her some back-talk, as he called it, she seized a rattan with a grip that turned her knuckles white, and counted all the stitches in the back seams of Thanny's jacket with it. The stitches held, because Thanny's mother did her own sewing, but the rattan looked tired for a week. The following morning Mr. Holliday inspected the teacher's work by the same method, and this was why Thanny was feeling superhumanly virtuous because he had just parted from his father when Rollo approached him. Sure enough, Rollo was quite ready to go with his father early in the afternoon. Indeed, he was ready before his father was. As they drove out the gate, Mr. Holliday said, "'Did you get all your tasks completed, Rollo?' 
to which rollo replied being deeply impressed with thanny's lecture not quite sir this answer appeared to satisfy mr holliday and it gave rollo a very broad margin indeed mr holliday discovered the following morning that the margin ran clear across the woof of the job into the selvage they drove to the station in the german town an indestructible vehicle which was invented in pennsylvania several thousand years before the flood none have been made since although there are over a million in use the german town is a wagon modeled after and in the livery of the black maria in which anything from a picnic party to a siege gun can be hauled it is somewhat less cheerful in appearance than a hearse although not quite so heavy however as the old new england carry-all of which it is probably a sport that is if it be not sacrilege to speak of such a combination as a sport mr holliday was a puritan his fathers came over with the pilgrims of course no holidays were allowed on the mayflower but mr holliday's great-grandfather registered himself as fast day and came through all right the keenest expert could not detect any difference between the massachusetts fast day recently deceased died of jim jams probably and the wildest holiday that ever romped around as christmas in mexico or as the fourth of july in arizona rollo asked permission to drive but his father said no the horse might bolt and run away and the carriage would be broken and they might be killed as rollo had once seen a broken anvil he did not doubt that some terrific convulsion of nature might strain one of the weaker parts of a german town his father said that he had to drive cotton mather that was the name of the horse with a tight rein and a firm wrist for he was very high-spirited cotton mather was a hundred and ten years old when he was a colt of course he was older than that his neck which was very long and flexible fitted at the smaller end into the middle of his head the large end which was made for the collar grew into his body when they had travelled for quite a long distance out into the world which lies all around Bryn Mawr and even projects a little ways into it between easter sunday and carnival rollo's father allowed rollo to take the reins saying that he would watch him and teach him to drive rollo was very proud albeit a trifle nervous presently they came to a cross-road which is a place in the country at which anywhere from two to seven roads meet and cross at different angles acute obtuse right salient and re-entrant at one side of the crossing far away from the focus a fingerboard or guide-post is set up by the supervisors the fingerboard is nailed high upon the post the name of the town indicated and the number of miles is painted in small letters in gray paint on a drab ground so that it is extremely difficult to read but at the end of the board the letter m standing for miles is painted bold black and large thus the average fingerboard presents this appearance to the traveller two mm, m why are the guide boards painted so dimly asked rollo because there is no reason for it replied his father that is why it is one of the traditions of the office to make them in this way and do i turn down this road to the left the way the fingerboard points to go to kickapoo town asked rollo no replied his father you go in exactly the opposite direction that is another tradition of the office you see my son the guide boards are set up after this manner the fingerboard is nailed to the post in the shop which is the barn of the supervisor they are then loaded into a wagon and sent out on the road in charge of a man who cannot read 
He is instructed to set a post at every road crossing, which he does, setting the post firmly and making a good job of it without any reference to the direction in which the boards point. In this way, the traveller is more easily confused. He gets hopelessly lost and drives through more toll gates and pays more money into the coffers of the benevolent society which controls the roads in the interest of the wagon and repair shops. Now at this crossroad we turn to the right. Pull on the right-hand line. Rollo hastily began to pull in the slack, hand over hand, and as he coiled it neatly away, he was surprised to see Cotton Mather's head turning around and coming slowly after it, until his solemn face was staring at the occupants of the German town. "'Pull away!' cried Mr. Holliday. "'Haul hard to windward! Bring him around!' "'But,' said Rollo, "'I am afraid I will pull his head off.' "'No, you won't!' replied his father. "'Keep on pulling. He'll begin to turn by and by.' And so indeed he did. Cotton Mather had a habit, when the driver put him on another tack, of turning his head around after the drawing line as far as he could, while he continued to move straight forward on the old course. Uncle George said he was a good horse before the wind, but he hung in stays. However, he finally drifted around all right and got under way again, picking up his feet one after another very soon after putting them down in regular alternation and moving them to locations on the ground somewhat further forward. In this way they made considerable progress. Rollo's father explained to him that if the horse did not move his feet in this manner, but allowed them to remain where he deposited them, he would stand still and they would not get anywhere. Wherefore, my son, he continued, while it is a good thing for a man to put his foot down, and we often hear him commended for so doing, it is quite certain that the man who never does anything else will never go anywhere. It is quite important in making progress to pick your foot up and place it in advance of the other and keep on doing this. I once knew a man who prided himself greatly because he had acquired a reputation for putting his foot down. People, foolishly or with guile, I know not, praised him for it and he kept on doing it. But one morning, after doing this for about fifty years, he woke up and discovered that the world had been moving all this time and that his generation, fifty years beyond him, simply looked over its shoulder whenever they heard him put his foot down with a new stamp in the same old place, laughed and went on. When you hear of a man whose sole reputation is that he is a chronic objector, do not waste any time or turn out of your way to go and see him. You can find him right there in the same place any time during your life, and you can see him at your leisure. He won't go away. In this manner did Mr. Holliday impart useful information to his little son on their journeys, and Rollo, being very attentive and eager to acquire knowledge, never forgot anything which he remembered. He now interrupted his father to say, "'We are coming to the railroad crossing.' "'I am very glad that you are so observing, my son,' said Mr. Holliday. "'Your great-uncle Winthrop Emerson Beans lost his life at such a crossing as this by reason of his studious and abstracted habit of mind. He was a graduate of the Universal University of all Universal Universities,' having completed the entire course of four years in one summer by correspondence, receiving a diploma which cost him fifty dollars, including the frame. This gave him a hunger for intellectual pablum which he could not satisfy. One summer morning he was driving to the city with a jag of wood, when, approaching a railway crossing, he observed a new sign in position. Stopping his team midway on the rails, where he could get a good view, he began to read, after his own deliberate and painstaking method, 
R A I L Rail R O A D Road Railroad C R O S Cross S I N G Sing Crossing Railroad Crossing L O Double O K Look Railroad Crossing Look O U T Out Railroad Crossing Look out, F-O-R, for, railroad crossing, look out for, T-H-E, the, railroad crossing, look out for the, and just then the limited express came thundering along and filled the air with buckles and bits of harness and horseshoes and pieces of wagon and fragments of wood and the greater portion of your great-uncle Winthrop. He lived only long enough after his return to earth to say that he would die happy if he only knew what it was he was to look out for. "'One should be very careful, then,' said Rollo, when crossing the railroad tracks. "'It is not a railroad,' replied his father. "'It is a railway. "'What you call the tracks are not the tracks, but the line, "'and the rails are not the rails, but the metals. "'The yard engine is a shifting engine. "'The switch is a siding. "'We do not switch cars, we shunt them. "'The conductor is not the conductor, but the guard.' The engineer is the driver, the fireman is the stoker, the ties are sleepers. The passenger car is a coach, the baggage is the luggage van, and the baggage checks are the brosses. But why are all these things other than what they are? asked Rollo. Because it is English, replied his father. But, said Rollo, the Hottentots probably have names for these things still more foreign. Why not use the names they would give them? I presume it would answer quite as well, replied his father. Anything would be proper, so it not be American. I merely wish you to avoid the vernacular of your native country. And one thing, said his father, in conclusion, wherever you go in your travels, I beg you to remember. What is that? asked Rollo. Remember the waiter, said his father, with a hollow laugh. Spell and define. Tip, tip, tip. Tip, tip, tip. Tip, tip, tip. Which is the oldest railroad in the United States, and which is the worst? That is correct. And which is the meanest? Yes, that is correct. And which is, in all respects, the best? State how long, giving the answer in years, you have had a pass over that road. Describe the habits of a railway hog. If a man habitually sits on a bench at home, eats pie with a knife, and wipes his fingers on his hair, how many seats will he occupy in a railway car? A boy at home is thirteen years old and weighs a hundred and eight pounds. How old will he be when his mother takes him out to Mahaha to see Grandpa? Correct. And how does he lose the seven years? A baggage man weighing two hundred and ten pounds sits on a ninety-pound trunk while he weighs it. How much is the excess baggage? End of section seven.